move of God, we must make room for God in our life. And we've been talking about different ways that we can do that. And today we're going to continue the conversation talking about making room for God's grace. Making room for God's grace. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, a parable taught by Jesus in Luke chapter 14, uh, where really it showcases the grace and the love of our God. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a, it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that as we open it up today, God, that you would speak to us, God. We come expectant. We come uh, ready to receive from you. Uh, we love you. We honor you, Lord. It is in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Luke 14, if you have your Bibles, uh, they give context. We're going to start in verse 15. Jesus has been at the house of a Pharisee a religious leader, and he goes into this parable which really showcases uh, his heart for those who are far from God, those who are outside of the religious circles of the day. In fact, Luke 15, he really continues the focus because in Luke 15, he teaches the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. Each is communicating his heart for those who are far, far from him, or even, even in the words of Jesus, those who are lost, spiritually speaking, which is, which is a paradigm shift from the religious norm of the day. But let's pick up in verse 15. It says this, uh, that one of those who are sitting at the table with Jesus says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus then replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, and I'm on my way to Bed Bath & Beyond. No, I'm just kidding. I wasn't in there. It's a Jeremy revised version. So I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered have been done, but there's still room. The master said, go to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. I want to talk to you today about making room for God's grace, and we're looking at this passage. I want to share with you three truths, three applications for your life on how we can make room for God's grace. Here's the first one, if you're taking notes, is we must first embrace God's sufficient grace. We must embrace God's sufficient grace. What I love in this parable is we see this man, he invites them to come, he then sends a message saying, hey, now the banquet's ready. Come on, the food is warm. And then when, when he goes out to compel them to come in, he sends his servants to, to get the people to come in. He eventually says, listen, go, go in the country roads, go into the alleys, go up the streets and compel people to come in until my house is full. Now, he wanted a full party. Come on, aren't you grateful? Our God loves the party. Come on, somebody. His first miracle was he turned H2O into Merlot. May I remind you? Come on. 
Some of you still lay hands on your faucets at home. You're saying, Jesus, do it again in the name of Jesus. It's biblical. But, but he, he, he's, he gives this parable of the kingdom of God as being a party. But it shows the persistence of the master, the persistence of the host. It shows the persistence of our God. I want to remind us this morning that our faith of following Jesus is not about us finding God, but about God's never-ending pursuit of us. That we don't actually find God, God actually finds us. That God pursued us, come on somebody, when you were running from him. That God loved you when you were living like you hated him. That God wanted everything to do with you when you wanted nothing to do with him. Aren't you grateful for our Jesus? The Bible says this, when you were still a sinner, when you were still far from God, when you wanted nothing to do from God, God loved you so much he put his son on the cross for you. How good is our God? It reminded me of when I first met Christina and when we were dating. And when I met Christina, come on, I knew she was a special woman. And uh, listen, I may not be the best looking, I may not be the most talented, but I am the most persistent. Come on, somebody. I'm telling you, a key characteristic in your life which will bear fruit is persistence. And I was persistent. So I, I would even strategically, I knew we met at the gym, and I knew when she would go to the gym, so I strategically planned it. So I showed up at the gym right after she showed up at the gym. I was like, well, funny seeing you here. <laughs> Come, on. Come on. I told you I had game. Listen, you need to pray, and you need game. Some of you take notes. This is called game, Okay. And then after we'd work out, I said, you know what they say, your muscles have been broken down. You need protein. Can I invite you to a smoothie? Game, okay? And then eventually I was like, well, you got to eat. So I, I invited her over to my house to make her dinner, and I made her salmon because she loves salmon. Your boy hates salmon. Come on, somebody. I say keep that fish in the water, okay? Don't be pulling that out no more. <laughs> give me some mahi. Don't give me that salmon. But how many of you know I acted like I loved salmon? Game, okay? I'm like, this salmon is so good. I know I love it with lemon and pepper. And now, listen, at one point, she even tried to break up with me, but I kept pursuing her. Come on, somebody. I am persistent. And now 12 years married, three kids later, holler at your boy, okay? Some of you, you've been trying to depend upon your talent and your looks, and all you need is some persistence. Come on. But can I tell you, my persistent pursuit of my bride is, is like nothing compared to God's pursuit of us. That God's pursuit of you when you want nothing to do with him, it, it is unfathomable how much he loves you and how much he desires to have a relationship with you. And then someone sitting with him at this table in verse 15 talks about this whole idea of, of, of eating at the feast of the kingdom of God. He says this, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. What he was talking about here was the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace in the Greek refers to unmerited favor, unmerited blessing from God. We are saved by grace. It's actually not of our own doing. It's, it's the grace of God. That Actually, it's the grace of God. Listen, grace is this. 
Grace is unmerited, unearned, unconditional love and goodness and favor of God that on your best day you could never earn. That's what it is. It's, and listen, in, in the culture that Jesus was in, much like our culture today, like it was a culture of conditional grace, right? And you know, we live in a culture of conditional grace. Case in point, the grace that you have at work is conditional upon how well you perform at work. Come on, right? The grace you have with a professor is how good of a student you're going to be in a classroom, Right? In Jesus in this moment, in a culture where religiously your grace and your standing with God was based upon your performance, he's now saying, I am giving you unmerited favor, unconditional grace. They would have been like, mind blown. To us, if you've been around church, you've been around this idea of, of grace, this is, this is common for you, but then it would, have been, it would have been mind blowing. And here's the good news of grace. Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 8, he says, that it is by grace that we've been saved. It's, it's through faith. This is not from ourselves. It is a gift from God. Listen, not by works so no one can boast. Now, I, I've spoken to Christians before where they've, this concept of grace, they've maybe understood it, that, that God's grace saved me, but they have a harder time understanding God's grace as still sustaining me today. Here's what I mean. It can be easy, even in church, that you can believe it was the grace of God that saved me, meaning it was not of my own works. I could not earn right standing with God. But then we can fall into this false belief that our current mistakes or our current failures or our current sin or struggles in our life, that somehow God has distanced himself from me. God is disappointed with me because of the mistakes I made. Do you know, here's the truth, church. God knows the end from the beginning. Can I tell you? He gave you grace even though he knew the mistakes you would make. He's given you unconditional love even though he would knew you would sin in that way. And that should free some people up. That it's not based upon your goodness. It's not like grace gets you in the door, but it's your works that keeps you in. No, it's his grace that keeps you in. Grace is not a booster that helps you live a perfect life. The grace of God is the gap filler knowing you could never live a perfect life. And then he's speaking this to a group of Pharisees who were known for their self-righteousness. It was the Pharisees who would say, thank you, God, that I am not as bad as the tax collectors. Thank you, God, I'm not as bad as those sinners over there. Do you know what self-righteousness oftentimes can come across? Is if you think you are better morally than somebody else. Because the Apostle Paul says, my righteousness, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Come on, somebody. He said, all have fallen short of the glory of God that not one of us in this room could ever earn our right standing with God. But thank you because of Jesus, his love, his grace, his sacrifice filled the gap so we can have right standing with God solely based upon his grace. Can I get an amen, church? But then Paul says, this is 2 Corinthians 12, he says, he says his grace is sufficient. The Lord speaks this to Paul. 
He says, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now, Paul was, was speaking about not necessarily the, the grace that he needed for his sin, although that's true. Paul was being overwhelmed by the ministry that he was in. He was feeling overwhelmed. Have anyone ever felt overwhelmed before in life? Come on. You're like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> have, have you ever felt like, this is too much for me. Maybe a situation at work is overwhelming you. Maybe raising those two kids, it's been overwhelming for you. Maybe just life in general in this season has been overwhelming for you. The good news is this. The same grace that's sufficient to save you is the same grace that will give you power in your weakness. And Paul says his grace is sufficient. God's grace can give you peace in the midst of anxiety. His grace can give you joy in the midst of discouragement. His grace can give you power in the midst of your weakness. This week I was playing basketball with my son Judah. He's really into basketball right now. And I, I've been, as any good father, I've been, you know, teaching him the ways of basketball. Number one, I've been showing him videos of Michael Jordan to remind him that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, not LeBron James. Come on, somebody. Can I get a witness in the church today? Come on. That's the best response I got all day. Come on, I'm just going to talk about Michael Jordan now, you know. <laughs> now, we were playing basketball this week. This is this little basketball he played at home. And so we played basketball, and, and I let him win. And when he was young and I would let him win, he'd come inside and be like, Mom, I beat Dad. Like, like completely convinced, like he is superior than his father. And... And uh, so we came in from basketball, and I, went, I said to Christina, Judah was there, and I said, I said, Christina, I said, Judah beat me. And he said, Dad, no, you didn't. He said, you let me win. And I had this thought that his own maturity, he's now realizing it's not his own ability, it's his dad. Do you know what maturity looks like spiritually? Is you realize where you are in life is not because of your abilities, it's the grace of God. It's not because I'm so intelligent. It's the grace of God. It's not because I'm all that in a bag of chips. It's the grace of God. Paul, to give you context, the, Paul saying that, Paul was highly educated. Paul was very successful. Uh, people, we don't know the exact amount, but it was known that Paul was incredibly wealthy. Paul was incredibly respected. So here it is, a very well-educated, very successful, very wealthy, very respected man said, it's not my ability, it's his grace that's made perfect in my weakness. Spiritual maturity is when you realize, I've actually gotten to where I am in life, not because I am that talented, it's his grace. And we realize the grace of God is sufficient. So you got to embrace the sufficient grace of God. Here's point number two, is you have to keep God in first place. You have to keep him in first place. So they go out to, to invite those that received an invitation to come in now. Hey, the party's ready. The food's hot. The wine's been poured. Come on. Come to the banquet. And this guy says, well, you know, I need to go check out this field that I bought. And, and what's intriguing about the, the excuses that were given here, and I want you to catch this culturally speaking, 
No one would ever in their right mind buy, buy a field at that time without first seeing it. So when he says, oh, I need to go see the field I bought, they would have knew immediately he was lying. Have you ever had somebody give you an excuse for not coming to something? Come on. And you know it wasn't the real reason? Come on. They, they tell you, oh, I, I can't come this morning. I'm, i got to study. And then you see on their IG story, they're at brunch. Right? Like, like you send them a little salty DM, you know, like, how's that studying going? Come on. Like, that's what was happening here. They're like, oh, oh, I got to go check out this field I, I bought. Not to mention, banquets were commonly held at night. Therefore, you could not inspect the field at night. You inspected during the day. Then the next person says, man, I need to try out these five yoke of oxen that I got. I need to go try them out. Again, what was commonplace in that culture, you would never have purchased oxen without trying them out. So again, they knew. Like, Jesus saying this, like those who were at the dinner would have started like laughing. Like, <laughs> what? They said, what? But what Christ was communicating through this parable, in the same way they gave, they gave unworthy excuses for not coming to the banquet, he was kind of calling them out in, a, in an indirect way. He said, you're giving excuses for not accepting my grace. You're, you're giving excuses for not following my way. You're, you're giving excuses for not, for not walking in the ways of the kingdom of God. And here's what I want to submit to you. Is what excuse are you tempted to give in the areas of your life that you don't follow the ways of God? That you don't obey the word of God? Because we're all tempted to make excuses, aren't we? That we all have those moments where maybe we realize maybe there's areas of our life and we say, you know, God, I'll, I'll be more faithful to you, God. I remember years ago before I came to Christ, I would often say this. God, I'll, I'll commit myself to you once my life kind of settles down. God, I'll, I'll, I'll come to church once the busyness of summer's over. Then it becomes, I'll come to church once football season's over. You know, I, just, you know, I love football, you know, it's... I'll come to church once, you know, the holidays are over. It's super busy, the holiday, you know. And what are we doing? We're giving God excuses. Or God, I'll give to you if I made more money. You ever made that excuse before? I, I did in the past. Or God, I'll honor you with my sexuality when I'm married. But you know, God, it's 2022. It's getting quiet in this church. But listen, here's the heart of Jesus, and here's my heart in saying this. There's no condemnation. There's no shame to feel. But God is wanting you to walk fully in the blessings of God. And he does have a way in which he expects us and asks us to live. Can I get an amen? And what we do, instead of making excuses, let me put it this way. As a parent, I find myself commonly correcting misbehavior as I did this morning. Any other parents, you feel like you have World War III in your house on Sundays? Come on. You're like, dear Lord, you all need Jesus. I need Jesus right now. <laughs> so we're getting the kids out, and I was having to, to correct some misbehavior. And uh, sometimes when I, when I go to correct, maybe you get this at home sometimes, and I'll hear like, well, Dad, well, she did. Well, Dad, well, he did. It's like, well, you see... What had happened was, <laughs> and they'll give excuses. 
And you know when they receive the most grace and mercy from their father? Is when they just say, Dad, I'm sorry. When they say that as a parent, I'm like, come here. Like, it's okay. We all make mistakes. And I teach them, what I want when you make a mistake is just to come. Like, it's okay to come humble and say, Dad, I messed up. Can I tell you, our heavenly Father is the same way. We don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to be full of shame. We don't have to make excuses why we are human and broken. The Bible says God loves a broken and humble heart. He loves it when we're like, God, I messed up. I'm sorry. I need you. I need your grace. And here's what Hebrews says, that we can come boldly. I love this. That it says to God's throne of grace. If you didn't know this, I want to encourage you in this. The throne of God is not a throne of punishment. It's a throne of grace. It's a throne of unmerited favor. He's not like, oh, you messed up, Jeremy. Punished. No, he actually took all of the punishment for your sin upon his body on the cross. So what he gives in response to our repentance, our humility, our brokenness is grace. And Hebrews says this, that when we come boldly to the throne of grace, we will receive grace. Watch this. We may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God wants to help you, church, not condemn you. He wants to give you grace, not some harsh consequence. So we can come humbly to him. And then the, the next person's excuse, I love this one. He said, he said, I just got married. I can't come. I got a full day. My wife has me doing DYI projects. I got to go to Home Depot and then Best Buy and then Bed Bath & Beyond. I don't know if I'll have time. I thought that was funnier than you all thought, so I'll move forward. <laughs> Here's what he's communicating. Is that this man allowed his commitment to his spouse to impede his commitment to God. And Jesus is communicating in this moment is to not allow your other commitments to impede your primary commitment. And, and, and I personally have seen this and maybe you have as well. I've seen, I've been pastoring for some years now. I've seen people who will be on fire for God, passionate, pursuing God with everything they have. And then they start dating someone. And all of a sudden, that flame slowly begins to go out till it's barely a flicker. I've seen people who, they were praying 21 days of prayer, praying for a promotion, praying for a new job. They get that promotion. Then they allow their commitment to work to interrupt their commitment to God. And they're no longer pursuing God with the same fervency and intensity. They're no longer, they're allowing work to pull them away from God's word and time and prayer. Or I've seen people when they have, their, have a first child. I've been there. It's, it's a, it disrupts your life. But, but, but soon what, what can be careful, if we're not careful, especially in our Western culture, is that child, which the Bible says is a blessing from God, begins to take center place in your life. And can I tell you, when we allow the blessings from God, children, relationships, promotions, finances, any, when we allow the blessings from God to take the place of God, it is called idolatry. 
We think of idolatry. We think of, oh, that's nothing we do in our current culture. It absolutely is. We all do it at some point. We all are tempted to do it at some point. I've been there. Like, what is it for you? What are you most tempted to allow to take the place of God, to pull you away from God? And here's what the scripture says in Matthew 6, 33. Jesus says that, this is the words of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That word righteousness simply means his right pattern of living, his word. So seek his ways, seek the kingdom of God first, and all the other things will be added unto you, he says. I was reminded of the importance of what you do first. The other day I, I woke up. It was a busy morning. I had my time with God, and then I, I jumped right into some work. And it was, about a, it was about 90 minutes I was up, and I was kind of in a flow. But all of a sudden I started having this headache, and my eyes got really heavy, and I thought I was getting sick. I was like, oh, man, I think I'm getting sick. And then I realized I hadn't had a cup of coffee. Now, some of you may be thinking, Jeremy, that's the signs of a caffeine addiction. I am fully aware of this, and I fully accept it. Come on, somebody. It's a healthy relationship. Anybody else, you'd be bold enough to say, I love coffee, and I cannot lie. Come on. For all of you tea drinkers, I still don't understand you. For those of you who are like, oh, I just drink green tea. I'm like, you are from another planet, okay? I believe in heaven they're going to have coffee. I, I just do. I just do. Um, there's nowhere in the scripture that says that. I just feel like, God, this is a piece of heaven on earth, so why would you deprive me in heaven? Thank you. Thank you. So I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. Come on. I drank a sip of coffee. I felt normal again. I was like, oh, there I am. Because <laughs> usually what I do in the morning is I have my coffee, and then I, then I, then I get into my Bible. And that sets my day. What I do first matters. What you do first matters. So Jesus is saying, what you do first matters, and you seek me first because it matters. So I would just ask her, do some reflection. Is there any other commitment in my life that's, that's taking place of what God has for me? And to just simply come to God and, and put him back at first place. I love what the theologian A.W. Tozer says. He says, as God is exalted to the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved at once. My question for you, if you're having problems in any area of your life, maybe it's, it's relationship problems, I want to ask you first, is God first in your relationships? If it's financial problems, is God first in your finances? Are you following me? Because the Bible says until he's first, he says, when he's first, all the other things will be added unto you. We have to keep God in his proper place in first place. Here's the last and final point. We, we then have to invite others to experience God's grace. So we've embraced grace for ourselves. We're keeping God at his rightful seat in our life first. And then we invite others to experience his grace, his goodness of God. He comes back now, the, the, the master, the host of the banquet says, go out quickly into the streets. Now this parable, his servants are his disciples, you and me. He says, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Now, what's important to note, culturally speaking, of why this comment right here, again, would have been another kind of 
mind-blowing comment from Jesus. Here's why. Because the crippled, the blind, and the lame were considered ceremonially unclean to the Jewish people during that time. Here's what that meant. If you came into contact with somebody who was ceremonially unclean, um, and usually it was, it was those individuals, someone who had leprosy, if you, were, if you came into contact, a dead body, with anything that was ceremonially unclean, you were barred from entering temple worship. So it impeded your worship. I want you to follow this. Again, here it is, conditional grace. If you come in contact with somebody who's unclean, you cannot enter the presence of God. And here's Jesus who is claiming to be fully God, saying, I want you to bring in all of the unclean people. And they would have been pushed to the outskirts of the community. So they had to, that's why they had to go into the, it said the streets and the alleys, these places that no one went. In this moment, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I didn't just come for the clean, I came for the unclean. Aren't you grateful, church? I didn't just come for the Jew, I came for the Gentile. I didn't just come for the rich, I came for the poor. I didn't just come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I didn't just come, come on, in 2022 verbiage, I didn't just come for the Democrat, I came for the Republican. I didn't just come for, for the citizen, I came for the immigrant. I didn't just come for the Washington Commanders fan, I came for the Dallas Cowboys fans. Okay, maybe not, maybe not that one. I think I took that one too far. I need to ring that one back. No, we, we love all people. We just don't like the Cowboys. I'm just kidding. Pastor New is a faithful Cowboys fan, so we pray for him. <laughs> well, I think we all need prayer this football season, so. But aren't you grateful that we serve a God? He came for everyone. He offended the religious people because he spent time with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. People would be like, don't you know what they did? He's like, yeah, I do, actually. He says, and I love in the Gospels where Jesus says, because I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. Now, do you know why we need to, we, we need to rejoice as the people of God that he came for the outsider? Because at one point in your life, you were the outsider. At one point in your life, you were outside away from God. And because of Jesus, he came for each and every one of us. That's why he lived it. And then we see in the New Testament epistles, the books of, of, that were written by Paul and Peter, there's a common theme. He, they remind the churches, like Romans 12, 13. He reminds the Roman church, watch this. He says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. We're called to care for the family of God. He says, practice hospitality. Now, hospitality in our English dictionary can sometimes, people think of hospitality like throwing a dinner party or inviting people over your house. And it does include that, but it's not limited to that. In fact, the original Greek for the word hospitality literally means the love of a stranger. It's the love of an outsider. So when you see Paul reminding the churches, whether it's at Corinth or in Rome, or Peter writes to the, to the, to the Hebrew Christians, he, they, they, they tell them, make sure you keep practicing hospitality. And here's a thought that I have based upon the writings of Scripture. Perhaps it's because our natural human nature is not to embrace the outsider. 
We're, we're comfortable where we are with who we know, right? It, it takes energy to embrace those who are different than you, who are outside, whatever the outside is to you. I was reminded back um, years ago uh, now, uh, six years ago, I, my son Judah was born. And when my, my, my daughter Hannah w- walked into the hospital room, and any parents who have multiple children can relate, when Hannah first saw Judah, she was two years old. The look on her face were like, I don't know about this guy. <laughs> because he was in mom's arms, so he's got mom's attention. He was getting dad's affection. She was kind of like, I remember, I remember the first time she saw him. She literally didn't even really acknowledge him. Come on. She just like scooted up in bed with Christina, like kind of pushed him out of the way. Like, I was here first, Okay. <laughs> So, so it was like, at first we were like, we don't know how she's going to respond to like now, you know, her brother. But then a few days later, you know, she's, she's with him nonstop. That like, I don't know. It was so cute because she would see him and she would say, aw, little things, little, little gestures he would make. Like, I think we have a picture. Oh yeah, we did. Here we go. Isn't that adorable? Aw. She's holding Judah there. And and they honestly are like, now, they have their moments, okay? <laughs> but, man, she, she grew to love him and embrace him. And now they, they became, like, attached. Why well, I'm saying that, because at first she was unsure. But you know why I think? I think that we see Jesus model it and Paul teach it and Peter teach it to practice hospitality. Because when you love someone who's a stranger to you, someone who's outside of you, and let me just kind of be specific. Think about the person in your life. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a type of person who, if you're honest, they are the hardest kind of people to love. You have that person in mind? And don't act all holy like, Pastor, there's no one that's hard to love for me. Just, you know what I'm saying? Think of that person. I think in this moment, God's saying, I want you to love them, not because it will change them, because it will change you. When you love someone who's different, when you love someone who might rub you maybe the wrong way, maybe someone has a different perspective than you, maybe somebody who votes differently than you, man, can I tell you, I think more than ever before, I believe this, biblical hospitality is actually the very remedy our world needs to its cultural hostility. Because you look right now culturally, would we agree there's some division in our culture? I think a room like this, where I look around, I see different cultural backgrounds, different races, different political persuasions. Can I tell you, a room like this makes hell shudder. Why? Because we put aside our differences. We embrace one another, love one another for the sake of Jesus Christ. And this is the very thing our world, our culture needs more than ever before. We don't gather around a platform. We don't gather around an issue. We don't gather to see certain types of change done in our nation. No, we gather because there was a man from Nazareth named Jesus Christ. And he gave his life for you and for me. He rose again so we could have eternal life. And that's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we come together. And he says, I want you to love those 
who you have a hard time loving. That's why he said to a Jewish audience, bring in the unclean. Bring them in because I want you to realize this is who I am. I love those who you find hard to love. Do some reflection with God this week. Who is it that's hard to love for you? And ask God, God, help me. Maybe to overcome some prejudice, some prejudgment in your heart. Maybe to overcome some, some bias you have and love those who are different than you. We as a church are called to embrace those outside the faith. That's all we have to be a church. I think Paul's reminding the church too, hey, remember, you exist as well for those outside the faith. You exist for those who are outside can come in and feel welcomed and feel loved and feel accepted. And then Jesus says this. He says, go out into the country lanes, go out into the roads, compel people to come in. He says, I want my house full. He sends his disciples, his servants to go out and to bring people in. Do you know he's speaking to you and me? It reminds me of Mark 16, 15, where he tells his disciples, go and preach the gospel to all creation. Go into all of the world. These young men who he was speaking to in this verse, all they knew was about 30 square miles. And what we know is Israel and, and different parts of the Middle East. About 30 square miles is all they knew. He says, I want you to go to all the world now. Can I tell you, that's why the church of Jesus Christ, we can never be satisfied with us four and no more. We, we can never be like, you know what, we're good. We're good. We don't need to reach any more people. We're good. No, he says, I need you to go and compel people. I need you to go and preach the gospel to all creation. Acts 1.8, Jesus tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, to the ends of the earth. I once heard someone say it this way, the Holy Spirit is in you for you. Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit's for you, to edify you, to build you up, to encourage you but the Holy Spirit's on you for others. That God did not just give us his Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to convict us so we get goosebumps in worship. <laughs> no, he, he gave us his Holy Spirit so we would be his witnesses in Bethesda, in D.C., in Silver Spring, in Germantown, in Fairfax, in Hyattsville, in Columbia, in Baltimore, that we would be his witnesses wherever we go. Now that word witnesses, I could take a whole message and speak to that, but I won't. <laughs> but it speaks to how allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you so you reflect the character of God. To allow the Holy Spirit to, to, to inspire you to love people like Christ. But it also means, that word witness literally means to attest to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. To witness means I'm attesting to the fact that my life is because of the grace of God. So I want to challenge you. And I'm going to end with this. It's to be a witness. To share your life in faith with other people. Now let me make it practical for you. I'm not saying tomorrow morning you bring your KJV study Bible into work and you preach a three-point sermon, okay? You probably shouldn't do that, actually. But it can be as simple as this. When someone asks you, how, how do you maintain your peace in this stressful work environment? Honestly, 
I probably wouldn't be have any peace if it wasn't for my relationship with God. Or they ask you, hey, I'm having a hard time in my marriage. How do you and your spouse have a healthy relationship? Honestly, I don't think we would if it wasn't for Jesus. Here's how he, our faith helps our marriage and strengthens our marriage. You just simply open up your life to them. And one practical way you can share your faith too is simply by sharing your church. I was reminded this week of a Catalyst member. It was earlier this year, I believe. He was uh, served in our, our military. I thank God for all of you who serve our country. He was being deployed. He had been coming for a few months. He was here while he was here. And while he was being deployed, he, he'd been inviting a relative of his to come to church. And on his last Sunday here, that relative came with him. And on that Sunday, his relative surrendered his life to Jesus, found hope in Christ. Several months later, he went public with his faith and baptism. In fact, that relative served on the same team his cousin served on. He, what, what did he do? He just simply shared his faith by saying, hey, could you just come to church with me? And can I tell you, on September 18th, Catalyst, we have a great, you have a great opportunity to share your faith by simply saying, hey, my church is having this special Sunday. I'd love for you to come. We're going to have a party after service. It's going to be fun. Just, why don't you come sit with me? But I want to I challenge us all in this room to make room for God's grace. Embrace his sufficient grace. Make sure we keep God at that first place and see that he will add everything else unto us. And let us not forget, we are also called, we are also commissioned, we are also sent to be witnesses wherever we go. Can you bow your heads with me, church?